Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and thank you so much for joining us to, Joining us on today, Canada's National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. It bears reminding people that the 94 calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which was published in 2015, as of earlier this year, the Yellowhead Institute and other arm's length agencies only considered 11 completed. Drastically more action is needed. And for folks not aware of the calls to action, I strongly recommend reading them, and we will link to them in the show notes of this episode on our website. The past week has also seen two devastating hurricanes, Fiona and Ian, wreak havoc on the communities on the East Coast and also in Florida. Stark reminders of the peril the world faces as a warming climate increases the intensity of such storms. Today on The Green Majority, we are doing something rare for us. We are bringing back a conversation from earlier this year. It's a fantastic one featuring myself, Lauren Latour, and Jordan Cooey a board member of Iron Earth. We'll join the conversation at the point of Jordan's introduction. All right, long story short, I have an undergraduate degree in Native Studies from the University of Alberta. Shortly after that, I was working frontline in harm reduction as housing first worker in Edmonton, doing music stuff out there. And then eventually found my way out west, living out here in Victoria, and was fortunate enough to get to work on a First Nation as their housing manager. And then through that, through the many other channels of things that I do, I met some people who were already on the board for Iron and Earth and they walked me through what they were doing. And short caveat, I used to be a pipeliner. And so I spent two years on the pipeline when I was in university or between university experiences, I guess. And Iron and Earth mandates about transitioning oil field workers to the renewable economy. And so that fit well with me because I also am in um, grad school doing my master's of sustainability at the University of Saskatchewan, part of the CASES program, which is the Community Appropriate Sustainable Energy Security. And that's the sustainable energy systems. And that program is specifically about transit transitioning indigenous, rural indigenous communities in the north to renewable alternatives to diesel, because almost all Arctic communities are diesel powered. My family, like I'm, my, I'm from Tetlikwichin. My family is from Fort McPherson, Northwest Territories. My mother was 60 scooped. She was born in the Indian Hospital in Edmonton, known as the Charles Campbell Hospital, where all the Indians went and all the people sick from the North with tuberculosis. And she grew up in Klavik, Northwest Territories. And then when she was scooped, she came down to Edmonton and lived out her days, had me at 20. And yeah, we've been rocking ever since. She's now a teacher, lives up in the northern, and lives up in the Arctic in a little town called Salowit, which is on the far shore of the Hudson Strait, so on the peak of Quebec. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got into the renewable world. And then Iron Earth fit that mold because I, I do want to be a part of the renewable energy transition. And I have a unique position in the sector because I desperately need workers. There's There's a shortage of workers in the West Coast here to build and to be infrastructure workers and renewable energy development is essentially the same thing as oil development. It's infrastructure. And so it needs those same skills. And I see a lot of value in that. And I see a lot of value in, in making indigenous communities and indigenous community members have those skills because what's the point of building the system if you have to hire outside sources to maintain it? Yeah. So that's my, yeah, that's, that's me. Thank you so much for digging into that. Yeah. Can't wait to hear more about, of course, the work you do with Iron and Earth, but also like your individual, your personal story as an energy mm -hmm. worker or a former energy worker. But we'll mm -hmm. start off with the radio show just to kick us off that way. Yeah. What can you tell us about it? Heck yeah. I've been, it's about two and a half years now, Landback Radio. Pandemic took a hit. We didn't have access to the studio for a while, but it's a show that specifically focuses on Indigenous experimental punk metal pop folk just a platform for indigenous music the radio is oversaturated with indigenous political content and is also more talk show based and there's just not really a space to have straight up music like a full hour of music and i, I wanted to make that i want to make that happen 
And so that's what I did. And it's been going strong for two years now. I think we're on the 50th episode now. Yeah. So every Friday, five to six, CFUV 101.9. <laughs> and so I, I want to dig into that actually a little bit more because in the pre-interview, we talked a bit about your passion for creating spaces for a wider range of music than, you know, what traditional sort of, I would say, white Western culture might understand as Indigenous music, mm. which I find so interesting. So can you dive into sort of the ethos behind your land back radio a little bit? One hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. The experience of Indigenous radio in Canada, uh, let's just call it what it is, CBC radio in Canada, is kind of really, um, let's call it palatable. You're going to have uh, pretty successful musicians come in and play their, their, their pop songs, their radio-friendly songs. And I really wanted to make space for the, the feeling of Indigenous aggression, the feeling of Indigenous resentment, the feeling of Indigenous, you know, anger and experimental expression. And that doesn't, that didn't seem to exist anywhere. Like no one was playing Raven Shackon. No one was playing Kite. And I'm like, this music's amazing. These artists are amazing. They need a platform. And I like, not that they don't have one, they are successful artists, but I want it to be a space where that can be what we focus on. And especially because as indigenous people transmutate, we become more complex beings in society and create more complex music. It's like case in point is Zebawan making trip hop and making like beautiful, like really like playful music or the bad creation out of Edmonton. who's like the poet laureate right now, if I'm not, or artist in residence for the city of Edmonton making hip hop, right? That's the kind of space I wanted to see happen in radio. And that's the kind of space I was fortunate to be allowed to create. <laughs> yeah. That's super beautiful. So the title <laughs> of your show is called Land Back. Tell us about that, how you settled on that as a title and like how it obviously ties into like movement and, and I don't know what land back means to you and what your expectations are by using that. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. So I, in the idea of like, like in the concept of symbols, I feel like land back operates kind of similar to a pride flag. It can't necessarily be owned. It can't necessarily be marketed. It should not be monetized. And it should be used as uh, basically a battle cry for the like, indigenous sovereignty. And indigenous sovereignty is important to me just generally because I live and work in a native community and I see the, the effect of dispossession every day. And then I'll just give you like a short story. The nation I work for is called Sayout First Nation. It's a small, one of the five Wasanich First Nations here on the Saanich Peninsula just north of uh, Victor, like the city of Victoria, about 25 minutes. And it's a small reserve, about 200 acres. In the 40s and 30s, when they were trying to really try to promote settlement, at that point in time, there was not much more than a mine in the area. They were selling the land for a dollar an acre. And then that basically created the reserve boundary. And so all the land that's now on the boundary of the reserve was the area in which the nations fought back and said, you can't take this. That land is some of the most profitable real estate now in Canada, where a single quarter acre is worth well over a million dollars. That dispossession is the direct result of the current experience of poverty. The Indian Act ties up land quite specifically under certain sections around it can't be taken by a bank. Basically, it can't be foreclosed. So it means that the banks won't lend money on it. You can't, it's not collateral. So land back is quite literally land back. <laughs> and I know it sounds facetious uh, to say, but it's like literally the return of the wealth that has been like systematically generated by the dispossession of native people. And the Douglas Treaty, bless its heart, does its duty in trying to reclaim that jurisdiction, but nothing can truly replace the repatriation of land to native communities. <laughs> yeah, that's my relationship to land back. <laughs> no, thank you. And for spelling it out so clearly to our listeners, it's a concept that we've dug into a little bit, but we're three white settlers that, that present these concepts to people. so. We don't always necessarily have the most in-depth or best answers. So thanks for spelling it out like that. The way I heard it is it's like, it's, it's reparations, but like skipping the intermediary of money. 
if, if you're thinking of, of money as like a representative of resources and land, really, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's cutting out the middleman and just going yeah. straight to, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And in, in that answer, you actually hinted at this next break, because in our pre-conversation, you discussed about the ways that sort of current regulations create this extra burden on Indigenous communities that live on reserve that you know don't exist anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think that, A, I think that's something that not enough people know about, and B, I, that obviously has a magnifying impact on, you know, that first you're dispossessed and now you're being held down. And so can you talk about what that looks like and how that comes to pass? Yes, complicated question. The The best way to answer that is to just more t- t- talk, talk about an individual's relationship to government. I, I live off reserve, so I have an individual relationship to go, which means you know, I have a city hall, I have the CMHC's housing program, I have BC housing as an affordable housing provider. I have, uh, uh, you know, Vancouver Island Health Authority for my health care. I have whatever coastal education board exists. And on, on reserve, you have all of those services consolidated into one entity that need to deliver the same quality of care that you'd assume the other agencies were with a tenth of the resources, a tenth of the capacity, and p- perpetually being reminded of the effect of ineffective governance. And so... In the big scheme of it, the the concept of like indigenous governance, which is trying to address this exact problem of land management, economic development, capacity development, educational development, is it, trying to re is trying to reframe this problem from being a municipal style level of governance to a direct community, direct democracy style of governance that's informed by practices of indigenous culture. This alone is not going to fix the problem. It means the systemic change of, again, the wealth generated from the last 100 years of dispossession is, could very much help stimulate that. But the added boundaries of not being able to sell land, not being able to receive loans because of that, having very, very limited resources in the sense of like housing security, which is really important to me, educational security, all of these things. And then on top of that, a government who pats itself on the back for what little it does on the daily. <laughs> if there's one thing uh, settler governments are good for, it's patting themselves on the back for the things that they have done that have no <laughs> seemingly impact as, you know, old growth forests get logged and undrip is apparently passed and yet Actually, that's a question. What is your experience? You live in BC. Mm-hmm. You are what the first generation that actually passed, you know, undrip. Has that changed your life, even as or your job at all? Like, ha- has has your life as somebody who's been trying to build, you know, housing on reserve and be improved by the passing of this should be bill to act adequately support you? The 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 easy answer is, is it's made it more complicated. I can I can tell the story behind that. I guess. As a housing manager, one of your like one of your many jobs is to build housing. You have a few different avenues to do this. One of the avenues is the se- the Section ninety five, which is reminiscent of Section eight in America. Section ninety five affordable housing on reserve for affordable housing, and it's always marked in this nonprofit model because every other CMHC loan to any other housing developer is has nothing to do with nonprofit. It's right, but because it's on reserve, it has to be nonprofit, which is unbelievably frustrating because how are we supposed to build indigenous brilliance without profit? You put us in a market economy and then you don't let us participate in the market. Anyways, section 95 housing is a complicated mess. It has like a lot of expectations, a lot of financial management, a lot of pre-development studies, all this kind of stuff. And you mostly get what we call INAC boxes, which are a form of housing that was uniformly built across camp and they're, they're cheap. They're easy to build. They are poorly built mostly because they're built at this bottom dollar and they're very expensive to maintain. And then also because it's subsidized, you have less rental income. You can't maintain it. The, the snowball keeps going. All of a sudden people are living in poverty with houses full of mold and you don't have any money to fix it. Undrip comes into play. This supposed savior of a program, which I have ambivalence about. And so BC housing, because now indigenous housing falls under BC housing, which is the, another crown corp, BC loves crown corps, 
and that administers the affordable housing in BC. Like during the pandemic, they bought, I think just in I, like one of my other jobs, I work at a homeless shelter here and do that part-time for like my side hustle. And working in these like SROs and these hotels, they bought six of them in the city and each of them they bought for like 10 to $15 million because they bought them at market rate. And they, they stuffed them full of homeless folks and did help a lot of individuals and all that kind of stuff. But then they created the Indigenous Housing Fund. And the Indigenous Housing Fund is for on-reserve housing programs. And unlike the street services or the, let's call it highest risk population housing, they built it in the same model as the CMHC. So now you don't get the, we're going to come into your community. We're going to give you $13 million. You build whatever the heck you need. They're like, send us a proposal. I'm fortunate to like have learned how these proposals work. They're actually quite lengthy. They acquire a lot of pre-development funding. You got to get engineers. You got to get architects. You got to get all these pieces together before you can even apply. And then it's about liability management. Because then the BC housing is like, well, we know that section 95 housing already exists. And we know that, that they'll pay for certain aspects of the house. We know that they'll pay for, let's say a, a better insulation material for the walls. They'll pay for a certain kind of high performance product in the basement, but they won't pay for a certain kind of roof. They won't do tin roofs. So if you put a tin roof on it and ask BC housing to pay for it, it's like, well, we're going to revert back to the CMHC and say, no, we won't pay for that. So you're basically juggling these two organizations against each other, seeing who's going to pay for one. So CMHC is like, I'll pay for this. I won't pay for that. PC housing is like, I won't pay for this, but I will pay for that. And now you've created a year long back and forth while people are still experiencing overcrowdedness, mold, you know, child endangerment at some times, because it's unsafe to have children in these homes and they're like, well, we don't know what to do. And so the four years that it takes to get one of these projects through, they only build 20 units. And in that time, five, you know, in, my, in the community that I work in, a hundred people have turned 18 and need housing. And so this UNDRIP is a, UNDRIP implementation has largely been a exercise in bureaucracy that hasn't really addressed the core problem, which is the dispossession of native people's access to the land market, which is the primal energy of every municipality in this country, but also like property taxes, basically like the reason that we have nice big cities and without access to that revenue, nations are always going to be in a position of accessing government services and it's frustrating. So I don't know if UNDRIP worked. I don't think it did, but it's a good benchmark. It's a good goal. What it really should be is we're going to just use the Jordan's principle because that's so much easier and so much less litigious. Are you familiar with the Jordan's principle? Yeah, I believe so. That's where that's for indigenous children that basically care for the kid first and then sort it out later. Yeah. Yeah. But not where they live. Right. <laughs> oh Do you see the problem now? Why is everything bad? I mean, the answer is colonialism and capitalism, but still, I, there's a little bit of this. Oh, and I, I, like, if I could just give you a riff on this, I think I understand why. Because in every other instance, housing is market. And one of the main, one of the big piece of language that you'll see in all of these organizations is, try, is called unjust enrichment. Right. They're trying, they're not, they're trying to, uh, they don't want to unjustly enrich something because that would be unfair to the market. We're not in the market. What, what, are, what are we supposed to do? It's like, oh, I, I won't pay for that extra fancy piece of insulation. That's probably going to be a lot better at wicking away moisture. I, I won't put a, a larger humidifier than necessary in a house because there's going to be 12 to 15 people living here. And that's a lot of body heat and moisture. And we need to account for that. It's like, no, we can't do that. Sorry. That would be unjust enrichment. Also known as, oh, the other term for it is the modesty clause, which frustrates me to no end as well. Um, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> no, it, that was incredibly comprehensive. So <laughs> this, this might be kind of a dumb sounding follow-up questions because it is, because it 
might come off as really reductive, but so you have all of your experiences that you've gathered via your work as a housing manager, but then Mm -hmm. you do have your work within iron and earth. And that sort of exists within like the nonprofit sphere and within the nonprofits, we're really big fans of like always asking for undrip, always putting that on our lists of principles and our list of policy asks and recommendations is undrip based on your experience with implementation, still something that you would actively ask for within that sort of like policy development space. Oh, I don't think I'm polite enough. Um, <laughs> I I know that that's how you do it in a, let's call it ceremonial way. Like that's how you would approach government, be like understanding that you've implemented these things. We believe that if to truly implement them would be to do X, Y, and Z. I don't know if I would have be able to restrain myself from just getting grumpy about it and being like, man, you got indigenous children living in poverty. What do you want to do? You can say, you, you can say no, you can say no but then you're not following the own governance of your organization. Mm -hmm. No, that's valid. Okay, well then pivot to something that makes us a little more cheerful. Um, (laughs) We're going to go to a music break. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the artist that we're going to be listening to right now in the song? Okay, okay. Heck yeah, I do. I'm just going to really be top down here. We're going to listen to Richard Inman's. We're going to the song Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite musicians in the world. Uh, Richard Inman is a Cree Anishinaabe guy from Pinoka, just south of Moscow Cheese on Tree Six, and recorded all of his amazing music in the prairie area between Treaty Six, Seven, and Three and One. And the, the man has a, the absolute most beautiful voice you've ever heard. And He's a, this baritone, he's like Towns Van Zant, but just like a crooner with a little bit of that, the zhuzh, you know? And I was really fortunate. The, the reason that I found out about him was that my fr- I was living in Edmonton and my friend's like, yo, you got to come to the show tonight. I was like, sure. So I show up and there's this big guy sitting on the stage by himself with a guitar and a couple pints of beer in front of him. And I'm sitting there with Connor and he starts singing and I'm like, oh my God. And then I start crying and then I'm like, this man is my hero. I love his music. I I tried to book him live once, but it was just before the pandemic and it never happened. But yeah, I think he's one of my favorite musical performers alive today and underappreciated. I think he should be, I don't think he, like, I don't think he'd want to be internationally successful, but I think he, he ought to be, you know? In, in which well, song? Thanksgiving Day. And it's a song about going to your cookum's house on Thanksgiving Day and having to hide your beer and hide your weed so that she doesn't get mad at you. That's adorable. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm so excited. So this is this is Richard Inman with Thanksgiving Day. Oh, do you want to listen to it? <laughs> Lauren, right before the break, hinted at your work at Iron Earth, so we're going to dive more fulsomely into that into that pivot. And so let's start as as far back as we can. For listeners who you know don't know about the organization at all, when we talked about it a few times in the show, but it's always good to sort of have a nice refresher. Can you tell us what Iron Earth is working to do and what you're doing uh, with them? Well, Iron Earth is trying to bridge the gap. The renewable future requires workers, and it's a workers' first organization. The organization is built around the idea that there is all of the labor force and all of the technical capacity exists already in the energy workforce. It's just about transitioning to different work in the same sort of field. And within that, they've done many different interesting projects. One of my favorites is that they've converted orphan wells into solar farms, and they're just really novel in their approach. And they're headed by some very, very intellectual, very, very smart and like really driven people. I admire that about them. And what I think is most important is that it's worker first, because if it was like that, just to be totally transparent, you, you can bet your bottom dollar that any, let's call it solar mogul, is going to write an agreement with CLAC, the Christian Labor Association of Canada, to build the next big infrastructure renewable project. Because that's the worker that the oil industry, the union that the oil industry created in order to get full control of the labor force as well as full control over the development. 
Iron Earth kind of stands to impede that and stands to like, invite workers to come out of their oil field and especially pipeline industries. And as a former pipeliner, I identified with that immensely. And I identified with the idea that these are transferable skills. I, there is something of value to be working in the energy world, especially in the carbon energy world, where these skills are basically drilled into you, but you still have them when you're done. And so like even now working in housing management, my knowledge of construction coming from working in pipeline and infrastructure is a huge asset compared to somebody who does it. And so it's about this skill development and about the transition of like more or less the mindset of the renewable future, because we have a kind of pathologized identity around energy workers, right? Who are, but basically let's just be real about it. The energy economy in Canada, and especially the restract, the extractive energy has become the ipso facto charity of all of these impoverished young men and women who go there to get their access to welfare, their wages, shelter, their lodgings, right. And education, their training. And because of that, they've sworn allegiance to the church of sun crude. And it's about knowing that they can have, there's a way out and that these are transferable. You don't have to do this forever, man. <laughs> yeah. So something that comes up a lot when we have these conversations, whether it's about specifically iron and earth or just about the, the sort of the path you're trying to open up for workers from that church of sin crude to, mm -hmm. to, to a different line of work that utilizes those same skills. The term just transition comes up all the time. And it's a real hot button term. And I've seen that sort of increasingly in recent years. I myself have, have been working on a project for work and we like agonized over terminology for like days and days and days and days because we didn't want to use the term just transition because so many people immediately get their backs up about that. How does the term just transition resonate with you? And if so, what does it look like to you? It looks like an oil executive made it. <laughs> <laughs> because it sounds like somebody's scared of losing their assets. A just transition would be one that's equitably transfers carbon stocks to solar stock. And that's just not realistic. We didn't do that from heating oil to peat, right? Like that was not an expectation of the initial industrial transition. Why would it be a expectation of the future one? It's going to hurt the oil economy to transition to a, to a diversified energy fuel source. Right. That's what we're really talking about is like, how do we limit the amount of energy that we buy and that we consume from carbon intensive sources? And that's an existential threat to the oil economy and the carbon economy. And so they market the just transition as being like, don't hurt us. And I was like, I don't know if I really care. <laughs> I know many of them. I've met them. They have very nice property. They have big boats. They don't seem to suffer. So I don't feel like the just transition is trying to, you know, emotionally appeal to the idea that this can happen, but it does, it does to me feel like a, a, a very worried CEO with a lot of stock in Syncrude, who's like, if people stop buying oil, I'm going to lose a couple hundred million dollars. And that's not fair to me. <laughs> <laughs> so if I can follow up then really quickly, what is the language that, that you use when you're having these conversations with workers, when you're having these conversations with these folks that are training, that are being trained with the idea that they are going to go and work for the oil and gas industry. And you're like, Hey, another world is possible. God, that sounded cliche. Anyway. Yeah. What, what is the alternative language that you end up using? The, the, the decentralization of the energy, I think is the fairest way to think about it. And it kind of meets more sustainable development goals. It puts an unfair reliance on renewable manufacturing. I feel like a little bit when I say that, but the, that's what we're really talking about is the diversification of fuel supply. Like I, I do believe in a green future of a hundred percent. And I believe in like, especially for indigenous communities, like net zero communities, but that also puts a lot of pressure on the manufacturers of those technologies. But what I explain to people is like, look, if you work in renewables, you'll have a job for the rest of your life. If you work in oil and gas, you have a job for maybe your grandkids life and then it's over, right? We're already decommissioning plants up North giant mine is like one of the most disastrous like environmental con like environmental problems in Canada that no one talks about, 
you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Fort McMurray, but it's one of the most unattractive and smelly places you've ever been. And yeah, I think it's about diversifying the fuel supply. If we can reduce to as the minimum amount of necessary carbon extraction, what does that mean? Well, that means you have to spend that much money on wind, on solar, on research and development. You have to fit on battery development. You have to have all of these other industries have to cooperate to replace the combustion engine. And I think that's a much more lucrative business. The combustion engine's not going anywhere. Unfortunately, we're still stuck with it, but motors and electrical, electric, the, the electrification of motion is something that is never going to go away. And I think the more that we work into that, the farther that this project of, you know, the, the green future can go. So I definitely want to dive into the diversified energy future, because it's also one of my hobby horses that for a while I got obsessed with and dove in. So I want to, I want to nerd out with that, with you about that in a second, but I do want to go back to one other thing you mentioned off the top, but I think it's such an interesting and important uh, conversation and which is that your unique entrance into this work, I feel like of working with workers, working with oil and gas workers or other people in fossil economies, be, uh, of you have jobs that you are trying to fill. So often in our conversations about these things, like we're always saying, oh yeah, they could go do solar or they could go do this or they could go do that. And it was, but it's always from a pushing side, right? Of like a, you can stop doing this and you, we promise you will find jobs. And then it's sort of just like, imagine the workers just like now just falling off and less looking for work. Whereas you're on the pulling side of like, no, no, I have work. Please come do this. And I find that such a important shift, right? Because then it's so much easier to imagine yourself doing it because you can be like, no, here is this exact job. This is what it is. And so I wonder if you can dive into both maybe yeah, that reality, that difference, but also the types of work that you would that you have and, and are looking to hire people for. Yeah, I got, I need people. Please come work for me. In the community that I work for, there's about 135 houses that I manage, right? Doesn't sound like a lot. The average property manager in like a building, like an apartment building is doing 500 to a thousand, right? Like it's not that big, but we're mostly managing families within the house and the building that they live in needs work. And so what I need is people who know who are elect electricians, who are plumbers, who are millwrights, who are carpenters, who are welders. I need people to come in and basically become the infrastructure development that is absent from basically Indigenous Services Canada funding. The, these jobs would exist forever because your houses are not assets. They cost money. Shelter costs money. I will always have work and there will always be things to improve. And with the end goal to have a completely net zero community, that means that we have to have, we have to have enough energy supply to power all of those homes, enough capture of the lost energy in the homes, be it heat energy or even the sewer energy, and then workers to maintain those systems. We need an upgraded electrical system because we have constant house fires because of the basically lack of building code in the 1980s when all these houses were, and it becomes a pretty like sustainable career. And I'm one of 652 First Nations in Canada, right? That alone is an industry, alone. Not to mention needing to build a, you know, 10 megawatt solar farm to meet the load requirements of the community. That's not saying just the general upkeep of those homes, of the neighboring non-Indigenous communities who need power supply. One of the kind of economic development strategies of many, let's call it Indigenous economics, is the monetization of indigenous lands through renewable energy development, because it's the one of the kind of ways where you can mix a cultural, pre a cultural necessity of land stewardship with the also energy security of the community. Those systems will need maintenance. Those systems will need replace in the very same way. The welders fixing the shovel in the tar sands have to maintain those shovels. The bitumen breaks them down. In the very same way, the sun degrades the panels and you have to put on new panels and recycle. This is a sustainable future and it's very intuitive to me to see how it can happen, but it's just a lot of anxiety. And also too, there's the, this kind of other problem that we have 
which is the artificial inflation of wages for energy, basically remote energy workers, where they're getting paid an enormous amount of money. They, not all of them necessarily deserve it. I, my case included, I was a pipeliner. I lived in Dawson Creek. I lived in White Core. I lived in Fox Creek. I lived in Grand Prairie. I lived in Oyen, Alberta. Getting paid three grand a week. I'm 24 years old. What do I need three grand a week for? And so I understand that. But then I tell those boys now when I talk to them, I'm home every day. You know, my, my, my girlfriend doesn't hate me. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Very simple things, <clears throat> things that matter a little bit more than $3,000 a week. And I need that work done. And if I want to see the indigenous future that I dream of, it can't happen without that workforce. It can't happen without that knowledge. It can't happen without those engineers, without those welders, without those laborers. They're all a part of it because in the very same way that Suncor was built, like thousands and thousands of people went to work there. That. Evidently, that's enough of a pull. I don't know. I, I'm desperate need of these things. I want to see this future happen. It makes me kind of sad that I can't find the workers to do it because the longer I can't find workers, the longer Native people suffer from poverty. And that sucks. Yeah. One other thing to just note there is I think a lot of these workers also do want to feel like they're contributing to something positive. And so the mm -hmm. ability to leave an industry that I'm sure leaves a lot of them feeling like they have to go home to their kids when they can see them because they're missing them so much and their kid is learning about climate change and, and they have to kind of be like, no, but I need to do this, et cetera, versus going to work with you and getting to actually help house people who need housing. Such a, I feel like a difference in your own life experience of being able to feel like you did something, you know, are positively contributing. So I promise that we do want to dive into this energy bit. So the last third of the show is going to be nerding about energy. But Perfect. before we do, what, we nerd about music. So what's the second music we're listening to? I don't think I'll find, I don't try to think of a good kind of segue into the next one. I would put on, what am I really into right now? That would be really great. Indian Giver out of Toronto. Metal band, kind of punk, really cool. They have, I believe they're on the interwebs. They shouldn't be too hard to find. Can't remember. I can't think of a song off the top of my head. I always just play the top song, but it's a fun little metal song. And that's a little born to land back radio is to play stuff that CBC ain't going to touch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Rosanna, dear child, if you're listening, you know, I know you're doing the good work. And sorry, who was that again, Jordan? That was Indian Giver out of Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Or, Fantastic. Yeah. Sorry, the song was Seventh Fire. Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> cool. Okay, so digging back into it, this is the last segment of the show. So, so we'll be wrapping things up a little bit here. So in before our music break, you were talking a little bit about like, the very top down energy transition pathway we're on right now, and specifically the need to decentralize and, and uh, diversify our, our energy systems as they currently exist. What to you does that sort of pathway to decentralization and reversing that top down flow look like? Household power generation. I know that sounds like a pretty simple answer, but it's the truth. If we bought 30%, if I only bought 30% of my power off BC Hydro, and every single person did, they would only have to produce 30% of the power they produce now. No, I love it. That was like simple, clean, concise, <laughs> the perfect soundbite. <laughs> you want the solution to the, to, to, to our climate crisis? That's it right there. I, yeah. I mean, I can't think of it. Yeah. And so when we were talking about this before, like in our pre-interview, you talked about your apprehension f about a, a green transition that did not follow that sort of way. And so I'm curious, if you, can you dive in more about why and what about this larger organization that does not decentralize power, that sort of keeps a hard path centralized power system in place? What about that concerns you and, and why do you think this decentralized is the only way to go? 
Well, the descent, like in, I love energy nerding. This is great. Here's the best way I can describe it. If it's the case that I produce 70% of the power I consume. So I live alone. I live in a 600 square foot bachelor apartment. I consume around, I think around 400 kilowatts a month, if I'm not mistaken, 400 to 500. Trying to make sure that sounds about right. Maybe less. Anyways, let's say I could only produce 500 from my house or 300. We'll go even less. 300, half the power that I consume, I am uh, producing at home and I'm only buying 30% or 50% of it from BC Hydro. Well, BC Hydro only is producing 50% less, but that's not how they calculate power. Power plants are built based on a very precise calculation of their net present value and their return on investment based on a power purchasing agreement determined way before the development of the project is even before they even got the development permits on the ground because energy, the big energy get big corporations, which are BC Hydro, Atco Gas, Direct Energy, Fortis BC. They've determined a long time ago, the price that they're going to be able to produce power for. And if the demand goes lower than a certain amount, they will no longer be profitable enterprises. And so they don't have an incentive to encourage decentralization. They have an incentive to increase efficiency so that we just buy less, but they don't have a, a decentralization plan for where the whole province consumes less because we still have things like streetlights and we still have things like hospitals and important infrastructure that requires po buying power from large scale utility providers. And so I feel like that's the biggest hurdle for decentralizing. Is that again, we'll go on like the, in the microgrid idea of like my, the community that I work for, if every home had enough power generation in their home to offset their utility bill by 50%, BC Hydro is only going to sell us power. They're not going to change their rate of power because they're not allowed. It's built into the contract of what we all sign when the power purchasing agreement, they're not going to produce less power. So they're just going to either find a way to store it, or they're going to sell it to Alberta, sell it to Washington. They'll find a way to, to get rid of it. And this is, I think the strong, the hardest problem that for the green transition, and there's other problems for the remote indigenous communities too, like the ongoing diesel subsidy, which kind of artificially lowers the cost of diesel. And so the economics of the green transition, especially in those communities are a bit skewed because they're only actually paying a dollar a liter for diesel, even though it's being actually purchased by the market at that area for $2 and 25 cents. And so now it seems like diesel is actually more economical to run than solar, which might have problems in the grid and still have to have a diesel backup system and all this kind of stuff. And so those problems will still exist, but writ large, let's call it on the provincial scale, because we live in Canada and everything is provincialized. It would be an existential threat to BC Hydro for British Columbians to consume less. I, I would even say probably 15% less power would be. How are they going to finance site C? Site C's power supply has already been determined. It's already been determined what they're going to sell the power for. It's already determined how long it's going to last, how much the maintenance is going to cost over a 25 year period. This is, these are really primal parts of the development process. And I just don't think, I think that's what I like about decentralization is it's the most punk part of the green future. And we were like joking about like, like the hippies on Vancouver Island. And they kind of got that a little bit figured out. There are islands out here that are completely off. Do they acknowledge being on indigenous territory? Oh, heck yeah, they do. Are they going to give it back? Oh, heck no, they ain't. That's private property now. Tort law protected, which bothers me to no end. The, just the lack of recognition of that problem is just so punishing to sit through. But yeah, that's, I guess the long and short of it is like, I think that's why I think decentralization of power supply and fuel supply is the most important part of the green future. And it goes to the idea of it's already built into the Canadian identity of regionalism. It's like, we know that instinctually regional communities will know regional problems better. And so it makes sense to have regional energy solutions for every area, which then makes sense to have every home have energy production capacity, which then means that you ultimately have less power or power, we buy less power or more power secure, you're, like in context of the communities I work for, you're not at risk of like, you don't pay your bill to BC Hydro, all of a sudden your fridge is shut off, all of a sudden your TV shut off, 
you still have power generation. You can still run your fridge. You can still have a bath with hot water. Like these very primal parts of it can be kind of amended to. And that's why I think it's the most punk part of the future of the green economy. That, that makes sense? <laughs> no, totally. And I'm sitting here thinking about how I think so often, at least in the circles I run, and we're not very good at having this conversation um, around like specific like household energy use and to build on that, these concepts of decentralization, because we're so concerned with, we know that the vast majority of energy consumed is, is consumed by like the top 1% by like the most, like the wealthiest people in the world. So in my mind, I was struggling. I was like, Hey, well, like, how does that tie into this? How do you account for the fact that it's like, you might be able to like reduce my energy consumption and, and account for it being like off grid, as you said, or decentralized, but like, what do you do with the Uber wealthy? And then I realized that that's where the land back principles come into play because if we take the land back from them and redistribute then it all just feeds into this beautiful wonderful cycle and, and pattern that you're building in pathway so Love it. It, it all comes together <laughs> i have a quick super nerdy question which is so one of the reasons why i find decentralization so valuable is because the eastern seaboard is entirely on one gigantic grid and Part of that agreement for the entire gigantic grid is that you have to have as much background power at to, to to basically up and running and spinning to replace like your largest generation generator within something like an hour. And so everywhere on the entire eastern seaboard, jurisdictions have to have that much spinning power. And here we are in Ontario, really worrying about a bunch of nat gas, natural gas uh, plants that are about to come online, which essentially partially because that background power has to make up for the one largest power grid because we've agreed to this whole scenario. I don't know what the situation is on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And do you, like, like obviously BC Hydro is, is, is BC Hydro part of a Western version of this? Yeah. The, the North American power grid is, is like the large, one of the largest interconnected power grids in the world. If I'm not mistaken, BC, Alberta, Washington, Oregon, and California. There is, like, I feel like I'm being grilled in grad school. It's like, what name all of the different interconnect, inter, international power grids in, uh, in Canada, USA, and Mexico. But there is, I believe five, I know Texas is just one, which is why they collapsed the last blizzard. Cause they could buy power from somewhere else. Cause they're, you know, capitalist and there's BC, there's like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec is like the big one on the Eastern seaboard. Cause if I'm not mistaken, Quebec sells most of its power to New York state and when we're elsewhere, because there's more people in New York state than there is in basically Quebec and the Maritimes and Ontario combined. And so yeah, these systems similarly out here, but because BC is like, has this false sense of socialism where it's like they, they have the trappings of socialism with CEOs and governance. <laughs> and so we have like BC Hydro, we have ICBC, we have a couple other smaller crown corps that run and yeah, not necessarily. And that's because of the provincial kind of BC first buying second. And so that's why site C and site C is a project of the British Columbian liberal party. And they played a fast one on the province because they were elected in, in that kind of like Harper era of governance. And then like, I think, believe it or not as a response to Trudeau getting elected and they built it and they got it pushed through so quickly and so abruptly that the cost of decommissioning the project was greater than completing it for the incoming NDP government. Brilliant political strategy. Whoever figured that one out, you know, I hope that they got a Tesla or something, but like still very problematic. And Site C is like also in the peace country, which is like in Treaty A, which has a whole other problem. And yeah. And then Williston Lake's also a big old carbon emitter and no one wants to admit it. But BC's really, really regionalized, especially even on Vancouver Island where I live, where we have two micro hydro projects that mostly power the island and then everything else we buy from the mainland. Cause there are, if I'm not mistaken, two main lines from the mainland selling power to the island and natural gas. Well, you said that you felt like you were back in grad school. I feel like I need to like whip out a notebook and take notes when I, when I listen to this back on Friday. Learning so much. It's a masterclass. But we're unfortunately, we're coming up on an hour where we're going to have to close out the show. So is there anything that we didn't get to touch on today that you were really hoping to speak with listeners about? Alternatively, some closing final thoughts that you want to 
that you want to throw out there? The most important things for the future are attending Native musician shows. When Native people are playing music, you go. Just go. Just go. You know, why not? It's a five buck, ten buck show. Just go. Second, energy literacy. I spend a lot of time at work talking to people about energy literacy because of the inefficiency of the building envelope that everybody lives in. And I think that's really important. Know how much power you use. Know what's really expensive. Know what it would cost. Know, know what it would take for you to offset it, right? Like know like how many panels would it take to power my electric baseboard heater? Too many because they're incredibly inefficient. Or in other words, they're 100% efficient because they only release heat, even though they do that poorly. What else? Listen to Lambac Radio. Come on my show. I'm always interested. If it, I, don't, I, I don't know Toronto very well, so if you have any... Do you know Indigenous artists? Hit me up. I'm at Radon Joke, which is an anagram of Jordan Cooey. What else is there? Yeah, check out Iron and Earth. I really appreciate them very much for the opportunity they've given me. And that's kind of one of the reasons that we're here talking today. And I just want to mention that they really, I really appreciate that kind of level of connectedness. And yeah, I don't know. Consider bequeathing your land to the local First Nation. Perfect. Could not have asked for a, a better way to end the show. Thank you so much, uh, Jordan Cooey, a man of so many hats, we cannot name them all, but also a board member for Iron and Earth and the host of Land Back Radio, which is on, can you give us the exact time and station yet once more? On CFUV 1.9 Fridays, Fridays from, from 5 to, to 6. 6. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us uh, and have a wonderful day. <laughs> <laughs>